Amen. All right, so we got through section 6 last week of chapter 8. We're going to do section 7 here this morning on page 25. And I always like to leave a little bit of room if there's any leftover discussion, anything that we left hanging or any loose ends to tie up from last week before we get started on this week. And if not, then we'll just pick up. Yes. Yeah, well, that's very good. Good. If you didn't hear, Gord just mentioned that the, uh, a human analogy to God being the same yesterday, today, and, and forever, which is what we discussed last week, and yet God operates differently in different phases of history. He keeps unfolding this plan of redemption. Uh, and, and Gord just mentioned that is analogous to human parents, right? When your child is small, they need one thing, and when they're 25, they need a different thing. But the goal and the parent is the same. So, absolutely true. Oh, and I said we did 8.6. We did 8.7 last week, so we're on to 8.8 this week. All right, so let's read that, and then we'll work through it. To all those for whom Christ has obtained eternal redemption, he certainly and effectually applies and imparts it. He intercedes for them unites them to himself by his spirit and reveals to them in and by his word the mystery of salvation. He persuades them to believe and obey and governs their hearts by his word and spirit. He overcomes all their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom using methods and ways that are perfectly consistent with his wonderful and unsearchable governance. All these things are by free and absolute grace apart from any condition for obtaining it that is foreseen in them. Okay, so that's, again, a, a bit of a mouthful, and we'll break it up into little pieces. Uh, so we'll get up to the first footnote here, and so it is this. To all those for whom Christ has obtained eternal redemption, he certainly and effectually applies and imparts it. He intercedes for them. Okay, and uh, the texts there are, We'll split them up here. Who wants to take John 6, 37? Tim. Who wants to take John 10, 15, and 16? Enga. Who wants to take John 17, 9? Gord. And who wants to take Romans 5, 10? Howard. Okay, we'll get you next time. All right, John 6, 37. Okay, this verse was one of those verses that clinched certain ideas in my head here. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Can you see in there both the responsibility of man to come and the fact that man's coming is entirely from God? You see that there? If the Father gives one to the Son, that person will come. They will. 
but they have to come. You're not going to be saved unless you come to Christ. So you must come to Christ. And if you do this, if you do come to Christ, you will never be cast out. You have eternal life. You are actually saved. And we've had, I've had a, well, a number of discussions in the last several weeks, I guess, with different people about this. And it, there's, I think, several important things that we keep in mind here so we don't get in balance to the left or to the right. Uh, and that is, if, if, the, if the Father, or we should say, since the Father has given a mass of humanity to the Son uh, for salvation, uh, and so we see God's sovereignty and salvation, does that mean that the elect are always saved? Depends how we answer that. Is an elect person saved before their conversion? They're not. They're not. They're sheep out of the sheepfold. <laughs> they need to come in. Okay? Now, in the providence of God, is an elect person going to die before their conversion? No, they won't. Okay? Because this is sure, this is certain uh, that they will be saved, that they will move on to eternal life. They have to come. Okay, so there is a condition here in that sense. You have to come. Andrew. It depends how you... You can answer that both ways. From God's perspective, yes, they were atoned for 2,000 years ago. But in time, they are forgiven at his conversion. That forgiveness is applied at the moment of conversion. But in the decree of God, they're eternally forgiven. That's right. God will not send anyone to hell for sins that are forgiven. That would be double jeopardy. That would be unjust of God. So this is, we, we takes a little bit of thought. We cannot affirm in, in a passage like this that we are justified by election. We're justified by faith. But faith comes to the elect. So election isn't uh, the tool by which we're saved. It is uh, a statement on who God is going to give the gift of faith to. Howard. Correct. Correct. Yours. Yes, the reason this is worth thinking about is because temporally uh, we don't want to end up, and this has happened in the history of the church, and this happened particularly in mainland Europe about a hundred or so years after the Reformation, where you had something take hold in Europe that was called presumptive regeneration, which is just we assume, we assume all the children of all believers are Christians, and they really de-emphasized conversion. And you can imagine what happens after a generation of assuming everyone is saved because you're Dutch or because you're Swiss or because you're German or because you're Belgian. De-emphasizing conversion. Uh, and when the, when the English Puritans were actually pushed out of England and they had to go find safe haven in Europe, they were actually very dismayed at the state of the Reformed Church in Europe because uh, 
there was almost no emphasis on conversion. Lots of emphasis on election, uh, but, but really none on conversion and on the need that there is a moment in time which people need to put their faith in Jesus Christ. And so it is a hypothetical. I mean, God's decree is perfect, like you say. I mean, an elect person will not die before their conversion. But we don't want to de-emphasize the importance of conversion, right? These people in John 6.37, they have to come. They have to come, right? They have to put their faith in Jesus Christ. Um, or in uh, John 10, where it talks about the sheepfold, right? The, the sheep hear his voice, but they have to come in. They're sheep, yes, they're, they're going to be saved. They belong to the master, yes. But there's a moment in which they have to get through the gate. So we want to affirm both the absolute supremacy, sovereignty of God and salvation. It's entirely in God's hands. But there's also, this happens in the human heart. Right? Conversion is applied. Repentance has to happen. We have to put our faith in Jesus Christ. And so this is a bit of a hypothetical discussion, but I think it's worth, it's worth thinking about. We're justified by faith, not by a secret decree of God that we can't see. Right? But, but we can see, do, am, I, am I trusting in the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins? And if I am, then I know it's in me. I have saving faith. I've been converted. I belong to Jesus. So, again, yes, it's hypothetical. Yes, God's not bound by time in the way we are. Uh, but from our standpoint, we want to affirm salvation is 100% from God. Election is certain. This isn't God foreseeing things. He's doing things. Uh, and... Conversion is a, is a real thing. We have to be converted. The sheep have to walk in. Oh, Lisa and then Tim. Okay, okay so Lisa's asking the sheep, she's agreeing the sheep have to come in, but what about the lost sheep that, have to, that get lost? Uh, and I'd say that is, that is the Christian life. King David... It's an easy example because he's one that it's not too personal, but it is a real example. King David was a converted, justified man, not just an elect man, but a converted man. As far as we can tell, when he went into his extremely poor season of sin, and if he would have died at any moment along his path of sin of adultery and murder, he would have died, I understand, as a justified man. He would have gone directly to heaven had he died because he was converted. But clearly there's no joy of the Lord. Right? Clearly he's in a season of sin. Not because he's unjustified, but because he's straying, he's backsliding, he's, he's hardened to the things of God. David in that season is the lost sheep. And the shepherd will make sure that those lost sheep do make it back in. Right? So, and, and that's also pastorally an important point that we can say well, well what about Christians who get into this extended season of sin can we lose our justification and I'd say no we can't so how do we understand people that seem to be saved and then they go into just a devastating season of sin and we don't know but I'm sure we can all think of examples like that like what gives I'm sure this person was a genuine Christian and now they're cheating on their wife they're doing whatever and I think there's two outcomes. One, if they are a sheep, they will come back in. God's not going to let them die in, in a state of unfruitfulness. They will come back in, like David. They will be restored. Uh, 
Or if they persist on that path and they prove themselves that they're not a sheep, they're a goat, they were never a sheep. They were a false professor. Right? They're, they're like in Jesus' parable of the, the soils. There's a little sprout that comes up and it looks good for a minute, but the root of the matter isn't really in them. Right? They'll make a profession, they'll show up in church for a while, they, they look like they're on fire for the Lord, but the substance isn't there. And we don't know until a person, and even after a person's death, we don't really know. We can make guesses based on what we see, but we can't really know the status of a person's heart. But the fruit will tell the story to some degree. Ah, good question. Okay. I don't know if it's a physical book. It may be. I've always just... Guess I've never thought of it that way. I suppose there's no reason it couldn't be. Uh, but I I understand the Lamb's Book of Life to be written in pen. There's no eraser, right? There's no one who's in there and then oh David's going through a rough season, so we're going to erase his name. Okay, now he repented. Now we're going to write it back in there. I, if your name's in there, it's in there, and it, there's there's no turning back. I would understand it's written in eternity past. So God's not, and it says it at the end of the statement here, God's not foreseeing the future. God wrote the future. The justified and the unjustified included. Right? So the Lamb's book of life is fixed. And, and how do I know if my name is written in there? Well, convert. <laughs> Turn to Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus, and then you'll know your name, is, your name is in there. That's the only way we have access to that list. Anything else on this? That's a great question. If you didn't hear it, Gideon just asked, people that make a profession and then walk away, if I'm understanding you correctly, do they know that they're a sham or have they convinced themselves that they're the real deal? How would we answer that? Okay. Okay, good. Anything else? Vern. Thank you. 
Mm-hmm. Amen. Yeah, and that's a great point. When we sing, uh, what's the song called by Andrew Peterson? Is he, yeah, is he worthy? When I read that section of Revelation and it, it just grips me. Like there's all these angels and saints and everyone around God and nobody is worthy to open up this scroll. Right? And you just feel the weight of this disappointment. No one is good enough to do this. No one. And there's a, there's a moment in Revelation where just, I'm gobsmacked every time I read it. There's half an hour of silence. You see legions upon legions of angels and this sea and the, the majesty of God and there's this choir and this humming and this buzz and then all of a sudden, half an hour of piercing silence. And think, you, you, have you ever noticed sometimes it's so silent that your ears buzz? <laughs> and you've just taken this all in. And you feel the weight. Nobody can do this. Abram's not good enough. Moses isn't good enough. The angels aren't good enough. Nobody can do this. And then comes <laughs> the Lion of Judah. Right? It's, it's such a majestic portion of Scripture. Uh, and he is worthy. But we have to feel the weight and the absence of what's it like without this line of Judah. You almost have to feel the weight of that. Even in heaven, evidently, for half an hour. So you appreciate what's going to happen when he breaks this scroll open. It's All is Eshtel, yeah. Yeah, that's flat German for all is quiet. For those who don't speak flat German. There was a hand over here, I think, as well. Okay. Yeah. Okay, John ten fifteen. Let's keep moving here. Who had that? Inga. Okay, good. Amen. Okay. So, I don't, now I forget who. Who was I talking to? Someone here? That had LDS missionaries show up, like Latter-day Saints, Mormon missionaries show up at the door. Said, No, you know what? It was a girl that was in the class at Miller. She texted me this week. Said, what do I do about these Mormon missionaries? Okay. No one here. Okay. No one here had more. Did anyone here have Mormon missionaries this week? No? What's that? Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure you do. <laughs> <You're, you're> <laughs> Myst, mystic fire. <laughs> Same deal. <laughs> so the Mormon missionary is going to tell you, see, this is why Jesus showed up in North America and gave Joseph Smith additional scripture. I have sheep who are not of this flock. Right? Also, once you get really into Mormon stuff, Mormonism is basically sci-fi because they're big into astrology and cosmology and different planets and, and all these different planets. 
that are going to be redeemed by Jesus as well. So what do we do with all that weird Mormon stuff? What's, what does Jesus mean here, that there's sheep that are not of this fold? Other sheep that have to come in. Limited atonement is one. Yeah. Jews and Gentiles. And we're going to see that a bit more in Matthew this morning too. Is, and Chris brought it up last week, quite helpfully I think. Jesus' ministry... As the tension grows, you see he goes, everyone loves him, and it's this open ministry. And then there's pressure, and he starts speaking in parables. And then he just outrightly starts literally to ask for it. There is a point in Jesus' ministry when he's literally asking for it. It's just direct confrontation. Like Now it's time. And you see that as he goes through the course of his ministry, the pressure keeps building and building and building. And a lot of his parables... I think one of the unhelpful things that we do with Jesus' parables is turn them into theological Aesop's fables, right? As though it's just a moral story. And there is a moral story. But if you watch closely, the kind of parables Jesus tells, they're prophetic statements about history. Okay? They're they're saying what's about to happen. So we're getting to this point now where there's enough tension with the Pharisees that Jesus is starting to tell them, you guys actually aren't it. You guys aren't it. I've got sheep in other folds. There's going to be a whole bunch of English people and French people and Ugandan people and Chinese people that I'm saving too. You Pharisees are not the be-all and end-all. And that's why, again, sometimes if we don't pay attention to the, to the initial context here, it seems like, okay, well, Jesus is telling a story about divorce, and now he's telling a story about a vineyard, okay, so, or about taxes and, and so forth, and that's all true. But if you're in that original audience, you know what he's doing, and it's making you very angry. So angry that you say, this guy needs to die, okay? A statement like this, uh, for, for the Pharisees that understood what's happening, they're thinking, this guy needs to die. Sheep and other folds, we are the sons of Abram. There's not sheep in other folds, right? I belong to Moses. Jesus is building the pressure here. And the fact uh, that he has sheep elsewhere other than Israel is not good news to a Pharisee, right? And he's going to bring him in. And, and so Inga mentioned limited atonement. And that sounds, to some people, you hear limited atonement. And all that means is definite atonement. That means the ones that Jesus dies for will be saved, so I prefer to call it definite atonement because some people hear limited atonement and that makes it sound small. But here's, here's the thing to think about. When we think about the extent of the atonement, everybody limits the atonement. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, either Jesus died for some people perfectly and so what's limited is the amount of people that Christ mediates for. That's what limited atonement means. It means he didn't die for every last person He died perfectly for those who are grafted in by faith. He died for his sheep. The alternative view also limits the atonement. It says, well, Jesus died for absolutely everybody, but he can't have done it perfectly because not everybody is saved. So there's certain sins, particularly the sin of unbelief that Jesus did not die for. Okay? So everybody limits the atonement. Either you limit who it's applied to or you limit which sins are covered and which sins are not covered. By it. 
and I think what's happening here is it's limited to the, the scope of who this is designed for is limited. It's limited to the sheep. Jesus did not die for goats. Okay? He didn't die for goats. He died for sheep. If he died for goats, it's already come up here. If Jesus died for all the sins of all men, who would be in heaven? Everyone. If Jesus died for all the sins of all men, you have to affirm universalism. Because it would be unjust of God to make people punished, suffer in hell for sins that are perfectly forgiven. Right? This concept is something most of us probably haven't grown up with. But, but think it through. If Jesus died for all the sins of all men, hell would have to be empty. Jesus did not atone for all the sins of all men. Okay? Unless you're a universalist, you agree that Jesus did not die for all the sins of all men. Some men are kept out because of unbelief. And if they're kept out of unbelief, that means their unbelief is unforgiven. So that means Jesus died for a whole bunch of sins, but he did not die for unbelief. Okay? You're limiting the atonement. Okay? And I think this is teaching it's limited to who it's applied to, not to which sins are and are not forgiven. That's right. Yep. But we should keep soldiering on here. Well, I should... Yeah, well, yes, because theoretically all sins are forgivable other than unbelief, right? Now you're cutting yourself off from the thing that offers forgiveness for all the other sins you've committed. That's true, yep. That is correct. Um, who had John 17? 17 verse 9. Okay, so Jesus, this is Jesus' high priestly prayer of intercession. Who's he interceding for? Yeah, those that the Father has given, right? Assuming, and this is an easy example. Now, you know, I'm going to use a less obvious example. I was going to say Hitler, but he gets overused. He gets too much credit. Nero, let's say Nero, one of the most despicable human beings who's ever lived possibly the most despicable human being who's ever lived. Assuming he died in his unbelief, is Jesus interceding for Nero, begging God to let Nero in? And the father says, nope. Okay? See how you actually have a problem in the Trinity? <laughs> if Jesus died for people that the father refuses to accept? You've got, skip, you've got a breakdown in the Trinity. If Jesus died for everybody... And the Spirit is applying it to some. Now we've got two different groups. And the Father's only accepting some of those. You've got a breakdown in the Trinity. For salvation to be Trinitarian, that means they're all agreed. The Father gives this group of people to the Son. He atones for this group of people. And the Spirit applies the gift of salvation to the same group. They're all, look, they're all working with the same group of people in mind. Okay? Which is those who are eventually going to become believers. Okay, those who are grafted in by faith. Yeah, 
if you, yeah, if you push it all the way through, a universalist could do that, yes. Yeah, so Howard's just saying, wouldn't it be consistent with the Trinity if essentially God elected everybody then, and Jesus died for everybody, and then the Spirit saves everybody? That is universalism. And that would not pose a problem for the Trinity, because they're all still working, they're all doing the same thing. Because love is love. That's right. No, that's... Uh, and if there's one thing I know about Howard... <laughs> I have learned one thing about Howard. He's big on love is love. Yeah. Indiscriminate love. Yeah. 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 For sure. Okay. But do you see that? We, we want to maintain unity in the Trinity, even in salvation. And so when we talk about the, that the gospel is Trinitarian, it must be. The Father and the Son and the Spirit disagree about nothing. They disagree about nothing. Okay? Because they're one God. There's one essence. They're, they're pulling on the same rope in the same direction with the same goal in mind. They're each at a different place on the rope, but they're agreed on what they're accomplishing. Does that make sense? Discussion on that. For how many does it feel like a balloon is being popped to hear that Jesus didn't die for absolutely everybody? When I started to be confronted with this, that was one of my balloons that got popped. Because I had always grown up hearing that Jesus died for everybody. Okay. The Bible says Jesus dies for his friends. He dies for the sheep. He dies for those you have given me. Okay. Discussion on that. Did I pop anyone's balloon? I don't mean to be masochistic about it, but, but we've got to think this through. Janneke. Okay, so Janneke is asking, if this is the case, Jesus loves me, this I know. Uh, I think, I sing it with a clear conscience. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. And there's, there's two things we can say. We can say there is, even for unbelieving people, there is what's called in script. well, it's not called in Scripture. It's a word we use to try to categorize different parts of Scripture. God's love of beneficence, which is just God's general goodwill to his creation. God does love the world. Okay? In a... In a beneficent sense, right? He is, he's kind. He's kind to unbelievers. Unbelievers can enjoy a medium rare steak. Okay? Unbelievers can enjoy the wife of their youth. Unbelievers can enjoy bringing a baby home. Unbelievers can enjoy a round of golf. Okay? God gives lots of gifts even to unbelievers. So there is a general love of beneficence that God has for every man, woman, and child. Even the most despicable people. Pharaoh enjoyed gifts from God. Nero enjoyed gifts from God. Mussolini and Hitler enjoyed gifts from God. So there is a, a general love of beneficence that God has for all creation. But we can't push that too far because we do have this other problem in Scripture that God hates certain people. Okay, and we don't emphasize that very much. Right? God hates Pharaoh. God hates Esau. God hates the violent. 
God hates people who shed innocent blood. Okay? God hates them. And it, when it talks that way, it doesn't say he hates the things they do. He hates them. And this distinction that we sometimes make, well, look, you know, God loves the sinner but hates the sin, th- there is some truth to that because of God's love of beneficence. But in the final judgment, what or who gets thrown into hell? The sin or the sinner? The sinner. Okay? The only people that you can separate from their sin are believers. There is no separation of an unbeliever from his sin. You can't separate that. They're, they're in their sin. They're dead in their sins, the Bible says. They're united to their sins. Christians are united to Christ. So there is a separation between believers and their sin, but there is not a separation between unbelievers and their sin. Okay? God judges the person for the action. So we can't separate that. And that's called God's love of complacency, which is like a love of satisfaction. And that God has only for believers. That love of God does not apply to every last woman and child. That satisfaction love, love of complacency, where God is fully satisfied, that is only for believers, that love of God. And so that's how we can make sense of God loves the world. There is a sense in which he loves everybody, yes. But then we can still make sense of all these people that are mentioned by name that God hates. Right? Or, or types of people. Darlene. Second Peter 3, verse 9. Yep, let's go there. Second Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Okay, so... How do we answer this? I think what you're asking is, how does this make sense in light of what we've just discussed, right? That Jesus is only interceding for some people, and yet here God wishes all. Yeah, so how do we do that? Uh, And I think there's two answers. There's a theological answer, and then there's an exegetical answer. Um, The theological answer is that within God, this is a big concept here, You've got God's will of decree and God's will of command. Well, what's that? God's will of decree is everything that comes to pass, whether it's good or evil. God decreed it a certain way, right? So Peter also says, it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. It's better to suffer for doing good if that is God's will. Well, is persecuting Christians morally good? It's not, but God wills it to happen, right? It says right there, God wills it to happen. So God wills certain things that are evil, not in the sense that he is the author of evil, but he has decreed history to go this way, right? That's God's will of decree. So everything that happens, good, bad, or indifferent, is, is God's will of decree. He wrote the story this way. Nothing is outside that. God's will of command is, uh, you know, in Thessalonians, This is God's will, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Okay, well, that's a moral command, right? Now there's a a moral statement being made. So this is, it's God's will to be sexually pure. Okay, hold that thought. In Genesis 5, 
Abram and Sarah go, and Abimelech sees that she's a beautiful woman, and he takes her. And you, we all know what a man wants to do with a beautiful woman. And then afterward, when he's confronted with Abram, he says, well, God kept me from her. I never touched her, because God kept me from her. Okay, so we know God can restrain evil. So God did restrain the sexual immorality there. When we get to David and Bathsheba, we already know the principle. God can stop a king from committing sexual immorality. He can. Okay, so are we all agreed? God could have stopped David. Do we all agree? God could have done for David what he did for Abimelech. Did God do for David what he did for Abimelech? Okay. Did God will David and Bathsheba's adultery? Here's the great thing. However you answer, you are correct. <laughs> okay. God's will of decree? God's will of decree. Did God will David and Bathsheba's adultery? Yes. God's will of command. Do this, don't do that. Did God will David and Bathsheba's adultery? No, he hates it. <laughs> okay? So, I think if we understand that way, will of command, will of decree, God's, this must be talking about God's will of command. God commands all people everywhere to repent. Right? So this isn't saying that, that, uh, that God willing that all should reach repentance, that's not an outcome, we all agree, that's not an outcome he brings about, right? Okay? So we're not talking about God's absolute will of decree. We must be talking about what God commands. And we know from Acts 17, God commands all people everywhere to repent. So I think what we have here is God's will of command. This is what he says you must do. Okay? This, his, his character would say you must do this. So we're not talking about an absolute thing that is going to come to pass, but something that God commands. Does that make sense so far? Ish? Okay. We'll leave it there. Now, exegetically, reading the Bible in context, maybe this will make more sense. Let's start, take it from the top. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowless, but is patient toward... Who's Peter writing to? Let's go to the beginning of the book and find out who he's writing to. Second Peter 1 verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Who's Peter writing to? Christians, the saved. Okay? Peter is writing to a group of Christians. And he's telling a group of Christians, God is not willing for any of you <laughs> to perish. You're going to go through some tough seasons of sin. It's going to be tough. You're going to have to help each other. You're going to be tempted by different things. But God is not slow. He's going to make sure that everyone here gets to the other side. That we all make it. Okay? He's patient towards you. So that would be, there's, there's two answers, like I say. Kind of one is the, the theological big picture answer. The other one is the contextual kind of exegetical answer. Who is Peter talking to? He's talking to the church, not to the world as a whole. And I don't know if that, does that help? Okay. Um, and I understand, because this is, uh, there's a similar passage in Paul's letter to Timothy that talks about the same thing about, about all people. Um, 
And I'd say that, that that shouldn't be a problem. But if we're understanding, one, the distinctions in God's, what God decrees and what he commands are often two different things. Uh, and the other thing is, if we're going to say that this is God's will of decree, that this is what he brings about, um, and, and so we would take essentially, you know, the, what's called the Arminian view or the semi-Pelagian view, if we would take that, um, most Arminians are evangelicals who don't believe in universal salvation. So they would, there would be agreement that this isn't what actually comes about. So we can't be talking about God's will of decree. This isn't teaching that all are ultimately saved. So somehow, either this is a different will of God or God's will of decree can be broken. It would have to be one of those kind of things. I think the simplest answer is, is the last one. We're talking to saints here, not to, not to non-saints. But, but ultimately, those two answers end up agreeing with each other, or at least they don't disagree. Discussion on that. Romans 10.13. Sure, yeah, and that's true. Everyone who calls, and then we just have to ask, okay, who calls on the name of the Lord? Right? Yeah. Yeah, but there's, there is no disagreement between the free offer of the gospel for all and the fact that God works salvation in the hearts of certain people. Right? It's God's work to create new life. Um, but we don't know who those people are, so we, the free offer of the gospel goes everywhere. And sometimes very unlikely people, like Saul of Tarsus, get saved. Right? And can you imagine being a first century Christian? You're saying, that guy? He was laughing when Stephen was getting stoned. We remember our deacon Stephen getting killed in a very inhumane way, and this guy was laughing. He was smiling with approval. And now he's going to be a teacher to us? Boy, that'd be a pretty tough pill to swallow, wouldn't it? Could you imagine today if some, you know, whatever, progressive leader or some Muslim cleric suddenly became a teacher of note in the church? That'd be pretty hard for us to swallow, wouldn't it? Yeah, and yep, yeah, and it was a problem, right? And remember, Paul even gets examined by the apostles. We can kind of understand why. I'd want to check this guy out too before I give him free reign in the church. Like, is he just trying to get on the inside so he can kill more of us? Is that what he's trying to do? Right? It, it makes sense that he went through a season of testing. Like, is this a real conversion or is this guy, right? But in the providence of God, he writes half our New Testament. So God, it. I would say it's always good news that God controls salvation because that means nobody is beyond hope. (laughs) The hardest case you know is not too hard for God. If God can crack Saul of Tarsus, he can crack your loved one who seems very hardened and committed to a life of sin. God's sovereignty and salvation should never be seen as bad news that's limiting it to this group of nine people God's sovereignty and salvation means nobody is too tough. No nut is too hard for God to crack. Okay? God can get through to the most impossible person that seems like right now. He can. 
He can. Amen. Vern. Genesis 50:20 yeah For me too. You know, I remember my first time plowing through the Bible. I think it was 2000, well, I forget what year it was, doesn't matter. Reading through the Bible and how often do you read Eli's sons did not repent for it was the will of the Lord to kill them? The cause and effect worked exactly opposite of how it worked in my head. In my head, cause and effect is they didn't repent, therefore God willed to kill them. The Bible says, no, that's backwards. God's design was to kill these evil guys. That's why they never repented. They were never sheep, right? Or God hardened the king's heart so that he listened to a false prophet so that he'd get defeated in war because God promised he'd get defeated in war. The cause and effect, in the way I grew up, the cause and effect was always man makes his move and then God reacts. And how often when you're reading the Bible, Old or New Testament, the cause and effect works the exact opposite. This came about because God decreed that this should come about. And that doesn't remove human responsibility, it just explains why do we do what we do. Well, either because the lights are on and we're glorifying God or the lights are off and we're walking in a life of sin. Right? But, but the cause and effect, actually, if Genesis 50, 20, Jeremiah 25 is another tough one. Well, it was tough. Now it makes sense to me. In Jeremiah 25, Israel's in rebellion. God whistles for the kings of the north. <laughs> okay? The king of the north comes down and ramsacks Israel. Okay? lays waste to it. And after he's done that, God says, how dare you? You attacked my son Israel. Now watch what I am going to do to you. You don't touch my people. How dare you, Nebuchadnezzar? Okay, what do you do with that? Can your theology handle God whistling for a king of the north to be his arm of judgment against his people and then God say, how dare you? Okay? Read, read Jeremiah 25. It's pretty challenging if you have a man-first theology. If you have a God-first theology, you can say this. Nebuchadnezzar had no idea what he was doing. He doesn't know God. He doesn't know what God's causing him to do. If you're Nebuchadnezzar, like Joseph's brothers, all you see is Israel has gold, they've got cattle, they've got vineyards. That'd be a pretty sweet place to, to own. That's what's happening in Nebuchadnezzar's mind. He has no idea that he's the arm of God for judgment. None whatsoever. He's doing what's evil. He's obeying the evil in his heart. And God whistling for him is just God saying, okay, free reign. Nebuchadnezzar, I'm giving you more reign to be more like Nebuchadnezzar. 
You've coveted this stuff your whole life, and I've held you back. Now you do you, Nebuchadnezzar. That's what it means for God to, <laughs> to give someone up to their passions. He does what Nebuchadnezzar wants to do, and God rightly punishes him for his evil intentions, like Joseph's brothers. Right? They weren't thinking, oh, this is a great way to escape a famine that's coming in a couple years. They just hated their brother. That's as far as their thoughts got. We hate our brother. Let's get rid of him. What they don't know is what God's doing in the story. Okay, so this is how you're going to save us from a famine? Right? That's what God's doing. What they're doing, they're accountable for because it was evil. Apply it to, to Jesus. Acts 2 and Acts 4. Everything went exactly according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It had to. Judas had to betray Jesus. Pilate had to do this. Okay? Now, did they do it? Oh, this, was Pilate thinking, okay, sweet, this is the salvation of the world. Is that what Judas was thinking? No. There was hate in their heart. What's God doing? Saving the world. <laughs> right? So we don't know. That people are accountable for what's in their heart, for the motivation behind their actions. And we don't know what kind of a story God is telling with those actions. Okay? God's not planting evil in people's hearts. When he gives you up, he's just saying, free reign. Pharaoh, be more like Pharaoh. Nebuchadnezzar, be more like Nebuchadnezzar. That's what it means for God to decree evil. He's not planting evil in someone's heart. He's just giving them more rope to be more them. They have more freedom, not less. Right? God is holding it back. And now he says, okay, putting the reins down. Go for it. Okay? And that's difficult to understand in one sense, and yet the Bible will not make sense without those categories. At least I don't see how it can make sense. Lisa. That right there is the difference between evangelical orthodox Calvinism and hyper-Calvinism. And hyper-Calvinism is not Calvinism, and it's not evangelical, and it's not reformed, and it's not biblical. Hyper-Calvinism takes God's decree so far that it almost destroys human agency. And so what happens, and this is why reformed theology was so hard for me to swallow, because this is exactly what I pictured when I heard words like election or predestination, what I pictured was people who want to get into the, the kingdom, right? People banging at the door of heaven, let me in, and God checks his sheet and says, no, not elect. Or I pictured ungodly people who had never made any kind of conversion whatsoever, and they're living in sin, and they find out, oh, sweet, I was elect? Awesome. This is great. I enjoyed my sin and I get to go to heaven. This is wonderful. That's not orthodox whatsoever. Warm-hearted, evangelical, reformational theology doesn't divorce those things. It makes distinctions. But it would say, if you desire, if you're calling on the name of the Lord, an unregenerate person cannot do that. If you want to come into the kingdom, it's because you're in. If you want to seek after the Lord, you have been born again. 
Because unbelievers, unregenerate people don't want the kingdom of heaven. A hundred percent of the people who want in, come in. And a hundred percent of the people who say, no, thank you, stay out. We can't, this should never be seen as a robotic, mechanical, cold thing. God's, God's providence works personally. It works through the heart. It works through human agency. It works through our will and our decisions. Okay? So I'd say it's very important to see, can, and maybe that's where we'll, we'll end it here. Can we see everything yes and amen about God's sovereignty? Can you see everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved? Yes and amen? Okay. And nobody who does not call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Yes and amen? Okay. If you want to, that's sign of life. The Spirit has turned the lights on. That's who the seekers are, regenerate people. Why don't we close in prayer and then we'll carry on. Father God, you are kind. I want to thank you for the riches of your word. I want to thank you for the richness of Christian fellowship. I want to thank you for each person here. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us to read our Bibles thoroughly, help get us out of the way, get our preconceived notions out of the way. Uh, Teach us from your word. Lord, I pray that me and everyone else will have been out of the way this morning. Help us to read our Bibles for all it's worth, and I pray that you would keep us out of the way for the rest of this morning, that your word would speak, that your spirit would carry these words into our hearts, uh, that we would live for your glory, and we would know uh, the peace and the joy that comes from you. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for the richness of your word, that we should never get bored with studying. There's no bottom to what we can understand. Uh, And yet, Lord, at the same time, it's so simple that even a small child can know that you love them and that if they put their faith in you, that their sins are forgiven and they belong to you. Lord, thank you for that tender simplicity as well. Pray now that you'd be with us the rest of this morning. Minister to us, encourage us, strengthen us. We pray this all by your spirit. Amen.